I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Antonio Valdez. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start off by you sharing with us a little about who you are. Wow. The only way I can begin that conversation is talking about my parents. Um, Mm. My mother is from the Dominican Republic and my father's from Cuba. And uh, they both immigrated to North Jersey, kind of in the shadows of uh, New York City. And uh, as they met there, uh, and of course, I was born in Patterson, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. But I think that the way the reason that part of the story is so important is because when I was a child, we moved back to the Dominican Republic. And I spent my uh, part of my junior high school and high school years in, in uh, Dominican Republic. And as a result, it, a lot of who I am today uh, is really based on the experiences that I had because of where my parents took me, but also because, uh, as many uh, friends and family will say, I'm one of the lucky ones. I have two just really amazing parents who have uh, fought tooth and nail their whole lives to mm-hmm. make sure my sister and I had uh, every opportunity and every success that we could possibly have. Mm-hmm. So can you share with us about what you do? So I um, run a children's mental health agency. I'm the CEO of a children's mental health agency called the Children's Crisis Treatment Center. It's a uh, mental health uh, agency here in the city that specializes and focuses on trauma work, early childhood, and a lot of the stuff that we do is really based out of community and schools. Um, We do have traditional locations, as you would expect, weekly therapy and monthly psychiatric appointments, but we are very much focused these days on partnerships. So a lot of our work is working with charter schools, working with uh, emergency shelters, working with pretty much every kind of other nonprofit social service entity, healthcare facilities that are interacting with the same community that we serve. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've become a place that's very focused on how do we connect to the communities, not just the people. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, we're always in a mental health world trying to connect to the people that we serve, the kids and families. But a big part of what we're doing these days is really a big focus on um, how to connect to neighborhoods. The other, the other thing I, when I speak about trauma, there are really two different ways we could talk about the trauma work the CCTC has been doing. One is that we provide trauma services, trauma treatment, and we've been doing so uh, since 1989. So CCTC opened the first trauma program in the city of Philadelphia focused on children. And then the other half of who CCTC is around this topic is that we are a trauma-informed organization. And we have been using um, the sanctuary model for over 14 years now. And so CCTC is the oldest uh, user of the uh, sanctuary model across an entire organization in the city. Um, So there were some places that started before us, but they were more focused on one department, whereas we've done it throughout this entire time across the entire organization. Mm. So those are things that have really heavily defined who we are. And we start... I mentioned early childhood early, earlier, we start with children and families where the kids are as young as 18 months old. Wow. So um, the fact that we're so focused on young kids is a pretty unique characteristic as a behavioral health, mental health provider in, in the city of Philadelphia, and certainly I think in the region. 
Mm-hmm. And you all have been engaging in this trauma-informed space for a long time, um, maybe even even before trauma-informed care was a buzzword. Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it, sometimes things are fortune. I mean, a, a little brief story about how that happened. I was, uh, uh, you know, we some of my staff is very familiar with Sandy Bloom, who's the uh, the creator of the Sanctuary Model, and. Um, Sandy is from Philadelphia, but as many things are the case, you have to live 100 miles away to be an expert. So people across the country were implementing sanctuary, but Philadelphia really wasn't. Mm. And um, a, a common friend of ours introduced Sandy and I. We went out to lunch. She did her best to try to convince me that we should be that agency that does that in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And and as we were... Um, so. You know, I went out of there thinking, well, it's going to cost a little bit of money to do this this first three-year implementation. Where are we going to find money like that? And we really weren't in the position to spend it. So later that week, about two days later, I was um, meeting a, a, a board member at a restaurant. And we were having a conversation. He said, oh, you know what? There's this uh, guy here at the at, at this restaurant that I, that I know that told me that his wife has a foundation that has some money that they need to give away and they're looking for a a good agency to do this with but they're having a hard time finding one that matches up Mm -hmm. so i go over and say hello and he says it takes my car and he tells me his wife will call him and his wife calls me the next day and she's really 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 busy so said look i'll just fact out and by the way facts just so you get a hint as to when this happened i'll fax over a description of (laughs) of the uh of of this uh, proposal so I received the facts and it reads uh, the exact amount of the equal amount of what it would be to implement the uh, the program. And it mm. says uh, for a social service agency, mental health agency to implement sanctuary model. Wow. And I said, well, this is meant to be. So we took off on that journey. I remember calling uh, one of my staff who's we call it, we call her today. Um, the sanctuary diva, because for all these 14 <laughs> years, she's been the person, Grace Ryder, who's been the person at our agency that's really driven uh, the sanctuary work at CCTC. Mm-hmm. She, um, I called her and said, well, we're doing sanctuary. And the rest is history. Um, I, you know, sanctuary and trauma-informed, I'm going to speak about it from that perspective. Trauma-informed work has not only transformed and helped define CCTC in many new ways. It's had a profound personal impact for me. So I've, I've really changed in many ways due to, due to this experience and exposure to trauma-informed concepts and theories. So we know that every individual, every community, every system has a story and every story includes both adversity and strength. Can you talk to us about some of the adversities that you faced? Yeah, I'm going to mix a couple things together here because it, it's, sure. uh, it's, 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 you know, I, I want to start with the go back to the foundational stuff. The first question you asked me about who I am mm-hmm. and how much my, uh, my family, my, my parents, um, extended family. I've always had tremendous extended family in my life since I was a, a child, even if, even if we were living far away, which at times we were, because one of the, one of the challenges I had in my childhood was we moved a lot and we, I, I lived in many different places when I was really young. And, uh, you know, my parents were typical immigrants looking for opportunities and, um, you know, really that was, that was challenging. But of course, the thing that always made up for it was this enormous, these protective factors I had in my life because I had these amazing, loving, caring, adults in my life all the time, not only my parents, but my aunts and uncles and 
my grandparents and everybody who came around was there were so many I was even when they were lived far away I seemed to always have cousins around mm. so it was it was a really that's an important part of the story right mm-hmm. but in addition to moving a lot um some some weird things happened in my life that because of the protective factors because of my parents I didn't always understand were happening to me but you know I, as a as a young child twice living here in in the northeast um schools tried to put me back a grade even though I was getting A's and B's in school mm. and uh, once my father was actually told, told the wor- words um well he has to think in english first and then i mean in spanish first and then translate this to to english so we we wanted to make it a little easier for him so we could do that and i, mm-hmm. I spoke i spoke english the way i speak it today so it it really really was um that kind of thing happened a lot and and i think my parents really were my dad particularly was like someone who was almost heroic in his efforts to kind of fight those systems that were constantly um doing that to me as a I was a young child mm. um and then you know when i lived in the dominican republic i became so dominican i mean i was so much about life there and um had, you know assumed i'd be there the rest of my life when i was living there how old were you and, well when i when we came back i spent my teenage years there and so when i came back i was um 17 or, or turning 17 okay. at that point right before my senior year so you can imagine the challenges of of uh moving at that point especially yeah. from such a cultural difference so coming back to the united states at that point to a school in delaware where i was one of two latino wow. kids in that school that is a big significant change right so it was um i think that that time was really tough for me because there was a really a, a, a sort of a challenge around identity and about who i was um so i'd always struggled with the dual identity of being american and having spent my early years here and but really identifying with my my sense of being latino so when i came back at that point that was really tough and 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 there were things that happened some of them i was conscious that were happening and some that was you know there was a a baseball game in in southern delaware that had to get stopped that i was playing and when i came up the bat that i had no idea because i was focused on the pitcher but found out later that you know fans were yelling out um all kinds of interesting things because mm. i had come up to bat wow. so there were th- things like that that at that time were you just weren't i just wasn't terribly aware um because again i go back to my my parents who always told me i was um the best and could do whatever i wanted um so there was i, I always had that sort of foundation to lean on but it was it was stressful to struggling with that sense of identity and and the difficulties I was having and then later in life as an adult i think my divorce and the challenges and the pressure that placed on my children and in those years that i really struggled to make sure that i was always there for my kids and supportive of them and um just made sure i did everything i could to be the the, uh, the best dad i could i could be those are really really stressful years because just because those years that followed the divorce were really really tough mm-hmm. um and i won't go into sort of the details of it but those were challenging years for me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um and and you know clearly my kids are the, the love of my life so at the at the end of the day you know it's it's it, it's more than all worth it um they're both doing great these days and really happy lives mm-hmm. so more than paid off but um but those are those are i think some of the big kind of difficulties. I'm not one of these people who's had, you know, I again I say I'm fortunate because I'm 
when, you know, when people look at adversity and trauma on one side of the scale and protective factors on the other, I'm not someone who's had a lot of, you know, disproportionate adversity and trauma. I'm, I'm one of those lucky ones that really things lean a lot more on the protective factor side. Mm, okay. Um, it's so interesting to think about like risk factors and protective factors. Um, thinking about how each of us kind of have, have these things, um, that challenge us that are difficult, but then how we also have these other um, relationships and strengths that also balance out the adversities that we faced. Yeah. And I think that's, that's uh, I've, one of the biggest lessons I've learned in going through trauma theory and trauma informed work is, is it, there was an issue for me in even identifying that and making sure it actually, you know, when people used to talk about strength-based approaches and behavioral health, I, I sometimes I think those concepts can be overly simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the protective factors were more meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Those, those ideas, those ideas of like, what are these things that, uh, that really truly build resiliency in people so that they're able to challenge, they're able to handle challenging and, and adverse moments. Right. And I think that, that, that's the kind of stuff that I think we, if we could learn more about, we become more effective and, and skilled at, at, at really understanding and, and, when we're serving people and helping people, but also in relationships. I mentioned earlier how this has really had a profound impact on my personal life because in, in relationships, my work relationships, my personal relationships, I've really changed how I look at people because of this. Hmm. I really do try to understand. And of course, Megan, you've heard this phrase many times, but you know that the phrase in, in the trauma world, don't ask what's wrong with a person, ask what's happened to them. Right. And I've really tried hard. That's one of the things I've gotten out of this stuff for, for me personally is to always think about where that other person's coming from. What are their challenges? What are the pain points that they're struggling with? And that really, that really came from, from a better understanding of, believe it or not, the opposite protective factors, thinking about why, why am I sometimes able to handle something? It's because of these amazing gifts that I was fortunate to receive when I was a young child, which had to do with family and support and consistency and love and, and structure. You know, my life, I've never doubted about being loved. Mm. And that's, that's pretty powerful, right? So, yeah. um, that the, it started to change the way I looked at what kinds of issues people might be struggling with and what, not just people, but communities and families and, neighborhoods. Mm. So can you share a few important positive moments or turning points in your story? So I already mentioned it to an extent, but I'll, I'll, I'll go a little deeper in it. I think one of the things that, that, um, that happened to me is when, when we moved to the Dominican Republic, it was, it was a, it was a great experience for all the obvious reasons, right? We lived in the city, I had this enormous amount of independence. I took a, I took a taxi to school every day and, and back. I, you know, my, my cousin's husband was a scout for a major league baseball team. So I had a pass to the winter league games nice. and I would, I would come and go as I please. And I just sat in any empty seat I found. Right. And just imagine being 14, 15 years old and being, and, and being able to hang out and do those things. And I had yeah. enormous freedom. You know, there were there were challenges when I lived there because I, you know, my parents owned a a restaurant. And so I would come after work and and, um, every day of the restaurant, I'd have my uh, lunch and then my my mom would go home and I would at 15. I was the manager. Uh, So so I did. I did the afternoon shift. Talk about Um, like early childhood leadership experience. Right. So I have to tell you, it was it was uh, there's no doubt in my mind that that's 
had a major that had a major effect um, on how I viewed re- responsibility, how I reviewed kind of leadership. You know, being 15 years old and supervising people, you know, adults um, and and so on was was a pretty powerful experience. But the other thing that happened while I was there, I think, from a from was this this why did I identify so much with with uh, what I experienced there? Number one was when I was a young child. You know, I grew up in a home where we only spoke Spanish. My you know my mom for years only spoke Spanish, and um, you know it it was very much a going there immersed me a hundred percent into what I had experienced as a young child. Mm-hmm. But I think the the other thing that happened was ev- it, almost every day I was spending time with with other family, cousins, uncles. I had uncles that were about my age, aunts that were about my age. We we would just hang out all day together, out in the yard, go out in the street, play baseball, and it was like you were all. I was always with family, mm. and and it. Um, I at the time didn't understand the sort of the power that that had, mm-hmm. but it was kind of like an old fashioned experience where you were always around extended family all the time. Mm-hmm. And it, it just gave me a flavor of that. And that's, I think that that's one of really the, the really, str- really huge things that impacted me in my, my life was that, that experience and, and really tasting it and understanding it. And then when I came back to the, to the States, and uh, very soon after I got here, because I was only very, barely here before I was going off to college. When I went to college, I went to a school that was predominantly white, um, not a lot of African-American, Latinos or other minorities. Mm-hmm. And so I quickly worked hard at finding them. And it was like, but I, but it, frankly, I was barely off, barely oh, um, back from the Dominican Republic. So it was, I was, it was a lot of effort and I it really was very successful in Kind of building a network and and being involved with a lot of Latinos on campus and really continuing to push that that personal need that I had to be to have that be part of my life. Mm. So I think that time was really really important to me and has has defined a lot of what I've done the rest of my life as a result of that. Mm. So what is your vision for the future? What do you see for yourself moving forward? Well, I you know there are a number of different things that I. I could go different directions on this, but I think um, first about work, because this is really important. And I think one of the things that's happened in my career as I've gone through my career is, you know, I've been in mental health since I got out of undergrad and my whole life I've been um, working in this field and the field tends to be very individually oriented. Mm -hmm. It's about the person that you're serving at the moment. It's about the person that you're working with, you know, and, and as a result, the evolution that's occurred for me is that I've moved more and more into family, neighborhood, community, even large, you know, cultural groups, the way I see the world. And a lot of this goes back to when one of my majors in college was anthropology, and I was very focused on cultural anthropology. Matter of fact, at some point, I saw myself down in South America, somewhere in the Amazon, hanging out with with a tribe down there and and sort of learning culture and studying uh, cultural norms. Mm. And so that's always been a passion for me. So when this trauma-informed stuff started to translate a certain way for me, it started to make sense from a cultural perspective in groups. One of the things I saw um, Sandy Bloom do years ago was a presentation where she looked at the how culture is created by human beings, a biological being. 
And as a result, when you look at the way culture changes over time and evolves over time, it looks very much like a biological being in the way it changes. So as a result, I started to become more and more fascinated with that. So to answer your question, all that to say that I really want to see us in the, in the United States um, move more towards a foundational approach instead of a safety net approach. Mm. And so I, I think one of the challenges that we have here in the United States is individualism has served us well from a, from the perspective of capitalism um, and that, and that kind of individual achievement that comes from that. Mm-hmm. But what, but what that does is it only rewards that individualism rewards the, the handful, the small minority that actually is at the tip. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is that the majority end up um, sort of looking as if they're failures. Mm-hmm. And what I, what, what I would love to see us do is more effectively think, think about social services from a foundational perspective. So, for example, the, one of the obvious ones, schools and a public school systems. That where, where we have these systems that are funded by local taxes and so on. And there were you know, somehow if someone has, is in a bad school district, this is the fault of the people that live in that school district. Right. And these are things where we should be assuming that there's basic foundational experiences that every child gets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's different ways of talking about it, but I'm really t- talking about it from the trauma lens. I'm talking from the perspective of that we're going to increase the likelihood that kids are going to have protective factors in their lives, that everything that we do, you know, when we build where we put subway systems, where we put um, schools, what the, what, how we fund schools, how we fund healthcare systems, that we're looking at these from the perspective of looking at kids and increasing the protective factors in their lives, mm-hmm. how recreational uh, experiences are developed in, in neighborhoods are done in such a way that what we're trying to do is make sure that kids grow up with a lot of protective factors, a lot of opportunity to be exposed to protective factors, so that even when adversity and trauma hits their lives, they're more likely to be able to be resilient in those situations. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to I'd like to see, for example, here in the city of Philadelphia that I've obviously this is where I've lived for a long time now and worked for a very, very long time, and I'm committed to seeing the city continue to to improve is that I'd love us to see, to set an example here in Philadelphia where we begin to think about social services and how we treat people and basic services in the city instead of from a safety net where we're waiting for someone to fail to do something. Mm-hmm. By the, even the name is horrific if you think about it. It's a safety net. You're waiting for someone to fail because, yeah, right, they're going to lift themselves up from the bootstrap with a little bit of help. I, I could go on all, on, yeah. all day on the bootstrap. Yeah. The myth of the bootstrap. Right. So I could go on all day about that. But I think that if we could change to a foundational approach and assume every kid should get these things as opposed to waiting to kids are struggling to provide services, um, that would that would be a that would have a dramatic impact on our entire society. Mm -hmm. And that's a really significant paradigm shift. Waiting until um, waiting until imperfect systems uh, fail people or saying we're going to proactively implement things so that it doesn't even have to get to that point. Yeah, I once saw a presentation by Nadine Burke Harris where um, she was, and for those who haven't seen her TED Talk, should definitely watch it. Um, but she was, I, I saw her presenting and she was talking about a, a little study that she did where um, she 
typically when we look at the adverse childhood experiences study and, and we look at adverse childhood experiences, we tend to look at them from the perspective of kids or, or adults who have high scores. In other words, they've had a lot of adverse experiences in their lives. Mm-hmm. We don't tend to look at them from the kids who have had very little adverse experience in their lives. Mm. And I remember something Nadine said during that presentation. She said um, she looked at only kids who had scores of zero or one, meaning they had almost no bad, ex- like terrible experiences in their lives. Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, when she showed the results, the numbers were off the charts. These kids affect doing very successful in school, positive health indicators, all this kind of stuff. And she looked at the crowd and she said, who would have thought it? If you treat kids with love, care, support, and consistency, they turn out really well. Hmm. <laughs> right? Right. Hmm. Are there any favorite or life-changing resources that you want to share with listeners. I know that um, this this resource from uh, Nadine Burke-Harris has, um, has been impactful for you. Is there anything else that you think um, would be helpful for listeners to check out? Well, I, I think the, the other one that, I, you know, I've mentioned Sandy Bloom here and, and the concept of sanctuary and trauma-informed. And I do believe that uh, reading any of those books that she's written, such as, you know, creating sanctuary or destroying sanctuary. These are, these are opportunities to really understand the subtleties of these concepts and why they're so, so powerful. And, and are a lot of the forces behind concepts uh, that, you know, the kinds of discrimination we say, see and families and, and communities having multi-generational um, really difficulties and, and not being able to move forward and people continue to live their lives struggling because of that. And I, I do think that reading a lot of material around this, I, anything that you can read about emotional intelligence is going to be of value to you. Mm-hmm. I, 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 just to give a quick example, we, we at CCTC as part of what we do, we use community meetings. And every, what it means is that every, every meeting, every meeting that's held at CCTC begins with a community meeting and the community meetings, uh, we'll have three questions. How are you feeling today? What are your goals for today? And who can help you or support you in achieving those goals? Mm-hmm. And I, when I think back to 14, 15 years ago, now I, every day, three, four times a day, I answer those questions. Three or four times a day, I answer how I'm feeling. And it's an honest answer. There's, I can't say fine. I can't say I'm good. Mm-hmm. I have to give a real feeling. And one of the things that comes out of that is that I've now done that for 14 years. And I've often thought before 14 years ago, how often did I actually stop and genuinely reflect on how I felt? Mm. And I I bet I can count it on two hands Mm -hmm. all my life prior to that. And now I'm doing it all the time so that even on weekends when I'm with family or friends doing something, you know, just having fun. I I actually pause to think about that. I actually pause to think about how I'm feeling. Mm. So I do think there's a, there, there, you know, within all these things, yes, read, read Sandy and, and others about these subjects. But I think, you know, anything you can read about emotional intelligence and the power that it has to support um, you being effective in how you work, you, you deal with your own family, how you deal with the if you're in the service industry, how you like in our world, how we work with the clients that we serve. Right. But how I but how we work with our our colleagues. And how we think about what's going on with our colleagues. I deal with it when I'm negotiating with a 
with a vendor or I'm negotiating with um, a payer, like if I'm an insurance company where I'm trying to understand what their pain points are. Mm-hmm. When they're not hearing what our needs are, I have to get to the point to understand what their pain points are so that they can, if I can satisfy or support what they're struggling with, they can begin to hear me. Mm-hmm. And I think these are really, really powerful concepts that come out of this trauma work mm-hmm. that I think will benefit anybody who's doing any kinds of work. So I just would strongly recommend that. And it, and it frees you up in other ways. So it's really interesting how when you, you start doing um, trauma-informed work, it frees you up as we've been going through some of the racial injustice issues that we've been dealing with lately. Um, it's interesting how conversations like about racism or ethnocentrism, facts versus truth, are easier for people to begin to digest and understand through the trauma lens. Right. Because because it's really, really this simple concept of, of understanding that everything you're hearing from someone is based on something that's happened to them. Right. Right. And then going back for a moment, um, applying these trauma informed principles to ourselves and also to our colleagues, I think it's really important for us to highlight the fact that trauma informed care is not just about our interactions with clients. It's also about our interactions with each other. Um, And I think that that gets lost sometimes um, when we're talking about trauma informed care. We absolutely want to make it a priority to um, have safe and healthy interactions with the people that we're providing services to. But also if we're not doing that in our interactions with one another, if we're not doing that in our meetings, um, in our dialogue, in our negotiations, we're not truly embracing um, the trauma informed approach in a holistic way. Yeah, one of, one of the big challenges, and this is a, this is a shot, uh, I'm speaking to leaders at this point, is that those, those systems that are looking to implement trauma-informed models need to understand that it begins with them, mm-hmm. that this isn't like a evidence-based practice that you want your therapist to learn so that they can use it to work with kids and families. This is, this is something that needs to be uh, a cultural model for your organization. This is, I've often described like when business people ask me about it, the way I, the way they digest it really effectively is by saying that this model exists to, it's a, it's a, it's a model for managing organizational culture. Mm-hmm. And it, it really has, it has tools to do it. It has language to do it. It gives your entire organization common language to talk about this and now how you solve a problem between two staff or someone who's bringing uh, personal issues into the office space or someone who's triggered by what's going on at the office because of stuff in their own history. Mm-hmm. We all, we all have baggage and we, and that all gets cycled into the culture of the teams we work on, the organization we work in and every, every interaction that we have. Mm. Is there anything else that you want to share with our audience? Um, I, I guess the thing is that, you know, one of the things you, you asked me about that I, I didn't say a lot about was this, this issue of um, giving back to the community. You know, a lot of times in the nonprofit world or people who do this kind of work, um, we, we uh, you know, what we're doing is already giving back in a way, right? Because we're probably making a little less money than other than we would if we were in the private sector, in the for-profit sector, et cetera. But the... Um, I think it's it, one of the things that's given me enormous value in, in, in my life for personally has been that, you know, the, the, I mentioned earlier how connected I am to my roots and my mom and dad's heritage and, and the fact that I got to live in, in the Dominican Republic. And the whole thing of being Latino has been such an important part of my life. So the fact that I've been able over the last 15, 20 years to volunteer um, for Latino based organizations and 
in, in uh, North Philadelphia, that I've been able to do work in, in South Philadelphia with the Mexican community, the fact that th- through CCTC, we've been able to do some, some amazing work to support people has really, um, really been fulfilling um, for me. And, and I, I do think that sometimes a lot of folks underestimate how much that can matter mm-hmm. to do that because we're, we're all pretty busy already. Um, and so to, it, it seems like where I'm going to get the time to do that. But I just want to share that with folks that it, it really can be enormously fulfilling and uh, to do something a little different than what you do every day at work. So even though I'm a, in a mental health agency, the work, the places I've supported have been other kinds of social services or cultural organizations. Mm. And that's that's a lot of that's been a lot of fun to be able to do that kind of work. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corredo, and my work with the story's trauma narrative intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there is always a story of strength and resilience.